Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. There's no such thing as psychology. It's all made up crap. Oh, really? Yeah. Just remember that when they're telling you how screwed up you are. Okay. And uh, let me tell you something else. Astronomy is BS, too. Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, quick trivia question. Do you know how many times you can say fuck in a PG-13 movie? Oh, I think I remember this now. Isn't it only like once? Right, once. And so they save it. Let's be PG-13 and just not say the word anymore for the rest of the episode. <laughs> so uh, I, the reason I thought of that was because um, I told Eliza that, and now every time we see a PG-13 movie, like she's sort of on the lookout for the fuck. <laughs> and so we, we saw Dawn of the Planet of the Apes the other day. And, and it's, it's so funny because when they, they only have one, and they use it just for no reason. Like, just at one point, one of the characters says, are you out of your fucking mind? And then Eliza turns to me and like, there it is. <laughs> There's very little uh, rap music that's PG-13, I guess. <laughs> I used to actually care enough to not let my daughter hear any of the... I would play, like, clean rap or, like, I would mute. I, like, songs that I actually knew so well that I could turn the volume down every time mm-hmm. a bad word came on. And now it's just, like... It, <sighs> It's like she doesn't even notice it anymore, which I guess is the is the best end result. Exactly. That's what you're going for. It's that the poison <laughs> is drained out of the word. It all goes back to that Lenny Bruce. Uh, so uh, you're David Pizarro from Cornell University. That's right. I always forget to say that. And I really worry <laughs> that, that no one will know that you're going to get all the credit for this shit. It's Tamler Summers and just some new guy every time. Uh, I, we had to talk about movies to some degree because this is not a movie episode. Right. Let me just think really quickly of a Star Trek episode that's real. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I'm sure you will. I'm sure that's coming because we are doing an episode on thought experiments and philosophy and psychology. Um, this is. It's an interesting topic because I'm very suspicious of thought experiments, and I have been ever since I really started out. My first paper was sort of a very skeptical look at what the zombie and Mary the color scientist experiments were really show, and I got into it was the last it was the first and last philosophy of mind paper I ever wrote, and, and that was your first paper. That was my first paper, yeah. 
it's funny because I was reading it for this episode and I, I was like, this doesn't sound like Tamler at all. You sound like an analytic philosopher. I, I it's, it's hilarious. I was going to pull out some quotes and be like, this does not sound like you wrote it. I was like going to Google it to see who you plagiarized from. Yeah, no, I was in a class by Guven Guzeldere. I don't know how you pronounce his last name. He's a philosopher of mind and do we read the chalmers book and i wrote that paper yeah and it was, was my first publication for a long time until like a few years ago it was my most cited paper not that many citations like 10 but it was still my most cited yeah. uh and it was a paper that i wrote for a class and never thought about again but well, anyway we're, we're i i've now. actually really enjoyed sort of thinking about it in preparation for this episode in quote-unquote preparation for this episode you know i'm surprised that we haven't talked about thought experiments just broadly yet i mean we've we've talked about specific instances of thought experiments um and what they do in particular we've talked a lot about sort of studies that involve the trolley problem and things like that but we've never actually bothered to take a step back and say like what the hell are these things and what they're doing i mean we and, yeah we've mentioned the trolley problem which was actually a good one to lead off because this is the latest way in which social psychology is kind of getting uh shit handed to them or no wait is that the expression <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I Heads handed to them, their dicks, whatever. Is now people are starting to raise questions about the trolley problem. Does it accomplish what it's supposed to accomplish in psychology? Right. In particular, um, part of the, this was motivated by a recent article in the <clears throat> in the Atlantic um, that was summarizing a forthcoming paper by Pete McGraw and Chris Bauman who are actually, as of, as of just recently, co-authors of mine. Yes, and they are friends of mine. Where they raised so some... So that's how some... she died. <laughs> oh, that, that is the punchline to a joke that is too foul even for this podcast that was uh, told by, by Pete McGraw. We got to have him on just to tell that joke. Yeah, definitely. Um, so Pete McGraw actually studies humor, and that's that's related to the criticism that uh, Pete McGraw, Chris Bauman, and others have recently raised in a forthcoming paper um, that was written about in the Atlantic, which um, is which caused some discussion. Um, I mean, this is certainly nothing new. People have been saying that the the problem that some of these thought experiments, especially these sacrificial moral dilemmas, are unrealistic is, you know... Should we, let's absurd. describe what it is, just in case there's a listener that doesn't know what a trolley problem is. <laughs> right. So the the trolley problem, I guess, is is the description of two dilemmas that are used usually side by side to illustrate something. This is an out of control trolley that, and it's headed towards five people. You can divert the track and have it hit one person. Right. Should and then when should you, you do that? Should you do that, or is it permissible? Maybe I mean, the language of permissibility. I was talking about this at this workshop I was just at. Like nobody says permissible. Like that's a philosopher right. thing to say, and you can't. Yeah. You shouldn't ask that in a study because that doesn't. Yeah, it's like is it permissible? Like think about that. Just think. Just step away from academia and think about like what permissible means just in ordinary context. Right. People have used different language across different studies. And this is actually a problem, I think, in it, it, whether or not we can even compare some of these studies with each other. Because sometimes asked, like, should you do it? Um, would, would, would you, you do right. it? 
uh, or is it good that somebody else did it, like right. a third person? Should you do is even just different category of thing than is it okay or is it permissible? Right. Permissible means it's not wrong to do it. Should implies that there's something morally good about doing it. Right. And would you do it to me is a completely different question. Totally different question. Totally different question. Should, should yeah. Because... And um, actually, Walter and Armstrong and, and some others have a paper. They, they actually <clears throat> bothered to give people these scenarios with these, this different language. And they found some interesting differences, but not as many differences as you might expect, um, which will lead to a, a sort of mild defense that I'll offer later on. Um, uh, yeah, argument so, from the null. Good. <laughs> I'll listen to you, science. <laughs> no wonder people. I know you, no wonder people can't tell who's the philosopher. You know why? Because uh, the, the only reason I know about that is because Tanya Lombroso gave a like a little workshop lecture. It's like one of the most informative things I've ever <laughs> attended on uh, experimental, like good and bad things to do, and yeah, an experimental methodology. And the null arguing from the null was a big no-no for me. Right. Okay. So the that's the that's the switch version of the trolley problem of the trolley scenario um juxtaposed with the the one in which the version of of the scenario in which you push a fat man who's who's <laughs> perilously close to the edge of a footbridge you, and eating a sandwich or a snickers <laughs> bar or <laughs> clearly <laughs> uh, where you are asked whether it's permissible to push an innocent person to their death in order to stop the train thereby saving the five people who are stuck on the track um and most people have the intuition strongly that this is impermissible or wrong or you shouldn't do it or whatever it is that people ask uh, <clears throat> it's this version that seems ludicrous to Pete McGraw and his co-authors which pretty much is ludicrous for many people and it's not I mean I think we've all had this sort of the, this experience where the first time you tell a class about this, you can't help but chuckle about it. I look forward to teaching the trolley problem in my intro class because it's always just a fun, you know, it's just like a, it's like a good time. The students will be into it. Uh, they'll be laughing. You can make all your normal jokes about it. And and in that sense, I think Pete McGraw is right that it is it does inspire comedy when really it's about, you know, pushing somebody to their death. Right. So so here's the, the quote Pete, Pete in The Atlantic is, is quoted as saying, if you study moral judgment and people are laughing about the experimental materials you're giving them, that might be a problem. I mean, it's certainly true that people laugh, but I would think that the – so when you look at the numbers, most – most people, 80-90% of people, say that it's it would be impermissible or forbidden or wrong or I wouldn't do it or you shouldn't do it to pushing the fat man. Right. I would think that if, if what this was doing was inspiring humor and that this humor was getting in the way of, of sort of the, the whole point of the experiment, that, that you would get far fewer numbers of people saying it's impermissible. I would think that people not taking it seriously would not say... It's totally wrong. Right. No, that's right. And that's a good point. I mean, given what they are trying to show with the trolley problem, which is usually that some sort of physical contact or um, or personal violation triggers certain aversions that just flicking a switch wouldn't do um or sometimes they're trying to show that you that you know it's uh, using somebody as a mere means rather than a side effect and right and, and, and once you get past once you get past the chuckles i feel i find that at least that people get get really catch the intuition that no i don't think i don't think that's right yeah it does seem like the the issue 
that you would think bringing comedy into the situation would be that they would be more likely to do something that they would never dream of actually doing. That's not what happens. They still right. say that they, they, right. that you shouldn't do it. Right. You still get these clear differences. The other, certainly it is the case that, that when we run these studies, we never use just that example. We use usually like, you know, 10, 15, 20 other sacrificial dilemmas. Um, and a lot of those aren't funny at all. I will say that, though, if in, in, in cases where you are get you're drawing results that are sort of a positive, like it's OK to do this and it does inspire laughter also I, like the, the critique would work if um, if the results were different. You see what I'm saying? Right, yeah. exactly. If the funny ones were the ones that were giving the permissibility yeah. ratings. You know, actually, one critique that you could make that about is your paper that I, that I always loved on Chip Ellsworth III, Chip versus Tyrone, Tyrone right. where um, there you're just looking at differences of, <laughs> yeah. you're just looking at footbridge differences of the two, the two guys on the bridge. One is Chip Ellsworth III, one's Tyrone Payton. And you get people more likely to kill the rich white guy than to kill Tyrone Payton. And I suppose that might be vulnerable to the critique. Well, the critical difference there is that, um, which, which doesn't get around exactly your, this, this critique, but um, it is that liberals and conservatives are showing a differential pattern. Now, it could just be that liberals and conservatives find it hilarious uh, um, when throwing a white man what are you so what are you trying to, to show with that paper and, and actually because this can broaden that, into what are you what what are you all trying to show with all these trolley problems because i just went to a workshop in kyoto where uh there were about four talks in a row on trolley problems and i just at one point i sat back and i just had this moment of wait what What's going like? What are what's everybody doing here? What are we all doing? Like, why are we? And I and I've used them. I've referred to them myself. Right. I'm as guilty as anybody else. I, I use them all the time. I teach them all the time. It's like, what? What's the point of this? Why? What are you trying to show? Yeah, the, the Chip Ellsworth the third. If you and if you want to briefly summarize it in the. So I have actually. I think I've done two two papers using the trolley problem. The first one is the one that you mentioned. There, where we where we used exactly these scenarios, like a lifeboat dilemma, where you have to throw one person overboard, or a trolley dilemma, where you um, where you have to push a person over the footbridge, and we varied the name of the individual. We said, well, you know, people are always giving it, um, you know, they're always saying, just describing an abstract person, like a, a large man or a man with a backpack or something. Let's give this guy a name. The point of of that paper was actually, in some ways this critique, which was everyday moral judgments are actually usually infused with a whole lot more emotion than person A, person B, or Joan right. Smith. So we wanted to show that um, that if you infused some sort of motivation in there, like you gave the person a name, and in this particular case, it was a name that, that either uh, had, had connotations of race or socioeconomic status or anything like that, that people's endorsement of consequentialist or non-consequentialist reasoning would actually change. So the point of this paper was it was just using these dilemmas as a way to show that people will <clears throat> happily or readily switch between uh, endorsement of consequentialism and a rejection of consequentialism simply depending on the names that you used. 
okay, so if if all of life was reduced to these two philosophical positions, consequentialism and non-consequentialism, certain little things would make you switch from one type of judgment to the other, like whether you were afraid of being seen as racist. Um, right. But real moral life is a lot messier than just consequentialism or deontological judgments. You know, like what, are, what what's something that's right regardless of the consequences? It, it's it's so much messier yeah. than that, right? So so I agree, and in part, I, I think this is the sp- the spirit of the paper is very much a Tamler spirit, I, although it is limited because we're using this method. So we're limited to consequentialist versus non consequentialist, and the point really was to show <clears throat> that people people are motivated to endorse these principles that sound like they're absolute and they sound like they are, you know, uh, I am a consequentialist. This is true, but they would easily switch back and forth um, between these two. And that the, the point that we were trying to make is that even though we speak in terms of these principles often, or we, we endorse these principles, then in reality, we never, we're more like particularists or like really bad particularists um, in that we endorse these universal claims depending on the situation, but we never really are, are wholeheartedly embracing anything like a universal moral principle. And I think that if you use like virtue ethics or whatever other ethical position was out there, that you could easily find the same thing that in fact, people are a lot more sloppy with their moral thinking than, than, than is traditionally assumed by moral psychology where you think, so this is in, was in some ways a critique of this methodology where we th- we said, look, you just you're assuming that people are deontologists or consequentialists by using these, but by using these very same scenarios, we can get people right. to flip around. Right. So your your goal was negative, um, whereas often the goal is to provide some sort of model of moral judgment some sort of causal model of how moral judgment works, whether you're supporting a sort of language uh, like Chomsky version or whether you support a more like John Haidt, you know, our moral judgments are influenced by these foundations and our emotions. No, that's exactly right. As a negative critique, I could see... I, I can see it working exactly in the way that, that that you just described it, but as a as a way of describing how our moral psychology work, it, that's where it right. seems very that, problematic I, to me. Yeah, that's right, and I think that those the assumptions that go into claiming that it is evidence for a broader theory of the moral mind are much more problematic than um, the way in which we've used it, which is to say, in fact you know you these are sort of almost a methodological critique which is you know you can't using your same methods we can show that 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 you're actually wrong so i think i so this distinction is one that you raised before the show when we were talking about uh, about thought experiments which is you you have these thought experiments as sort of deflating a particular theory and then you have thought experiments that might support a particular theory and i think that the by and large the majority of moral psychology that uses trolley problems has done so as an attempt to uh to elucidate the underlying structure of the mind like let's poke people let's throw these stimuli at them and see what patterns we get back and so the claims have been like oh isn't it interesting most people are deontological i mean to be fair it's always going to be easier to critique a theory then build a theory and you know find out what the underlying 
causal structure of our moral judgments is to come up with a theory of that. At the same time, the hubris of just using these kinds of judgments, and then when you bring neuroscience into it, you know that, and and try to figure out in what way that either supports or undermines your theory, there does seem something methodologically hopeless about that project. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So I think I'll offer, even though I've actually contributed to criticisms to this method, I, I think it's actually quite valuable. And I think that we've actually made a lot of progress because we've started using these thought experiments in in moral psychology. So the the last thing on the in the Atlantic article where Green, Josh Green, it's not... Uh, let's study trolley problems because they're representative of problems we face in everyday life. It's, here's an interesting puzzle. If we follow it, we might learn something important. And I'm wondering what that something is. That just like ends the article. And I'm wondering what that something important is from these trolley problems. Uh, and here I actually do do agree with, with Josh Green. I, I think that it's First of all, I'm not sure why you said you think it's dem- demonstrate hubris. Hubristic hubris. is the wrong. Yeah, that's wrong. <laughs> uh, maybe it's not hubris. Yeah. Uh, more just a sort of well, hubris in the sense that you're going to get at something that's so incredibly ambitious just by asking people for judgments in uh, in artificial scenarios. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So see, see, I think it represents progress in that we found a certain set of, of sort of these thought, these thought problems that seem to demonstrate something. They, there seems to be a pattern in the way in which, um, you know, most human beings are responding to these. And it's the move towards simplicity that has allowed us to even even the fact that it's allowed for the sorts of criticisms that say I've leveled in in the, those two articles, I think that it is that it is some progress. I think that that uh, in some ways, just cataloging and describing the richness of moral judgments, you know, it it allows for a certain kind of understanding. But the the goal here is to find something, you know, as as Josh Green calls it, the fruit fly of of um, moral psychology. The question is whether or not you know, if this in fact is tapping into something about moral psychology, then I think it would be it would be clear that it's powerful as a very very simple um, task that shows this difference across across judgments. But I guess the question is, if it's not at all, if it's not capturing anything about moral psychology that's of interest, other than how pe- the patterns of how people respond to trolley problems and these, these kinds of yeah, and these kinds of yeah. scenarios and stuff like that, because that would be right. that would be interesting in a in a puzzle way, but not interesting as right. a way of elucidating something about our real underlying moral psychology. Right, and I think that the task in particular for for moral psychologists using these trolley problems like Josh Green is to then to then demonstrate that that responses to these trolley problems share a relationship with more general under, moral understanding or the kinds of judgments that people might make in everyday life. This actually is why I think uh, the paper that that Dan Bartels and I wrote um, showing that psychopaths have uh, are more likely to report being consequentialist. Um, or sorry, people high in psychopathy, uh, at a, you know, normal people who are high on psychopathic traits, uh, that is more damning to this question that, that in fact, if this is failing to capture, 
whether or not your response to the footbridge dilemma is um, is predictive of whether or not you endorse, say, Peter Singer's view on web saving Africans, starving right. children. Uh, if it's not related at all to those kinds of judgments, then I think the problem might be right. more damning. It seems like the substance of what you're saying is negative, but the rhetoric switches to positive. Let me I just say clearly, I think that these seem to be capturing something important about our general moral psychology. But I think that the task is still the burden is still on those psychologists to show that it is more than just, as you say, telling us what people respond to how people respond to trolley problems. Uh, so on that right. note, let's take a break and talk about some other famous thought experiments in philosophy and psychology and science and physics and all of that. We'll be right back. Back to very bad wizards. Um, before we get into a more general discussion of thought experiments um, and and some of the cooler ones that are sort of my yeah. favorite uh, thought experiments, we would like to take a moment to th- I, I think just thank Tamla and I have been traveling uh, for sort of a month this summer and we're behind on a lot of emails and a lot of thank yous for donations and for uh, for just really good emails. Um, uh, so we thought we'd take a moment to to thank. Thank our listeners before we get to yes. email them. So thank you, and we will we will try to respond. We definitely read all of them, and we love to get them. And I'm all, I always look forward to looking into the inbox. Uh, very bad wizard, and always hope there'll be a new email in there, um, even when it's critical of us, as it sometimes or perhaps often is. A lot less than it ought I, to be. iTunes reviews. We like we like those. Please rate us on iTunes. Less critical lately. Uh, I like that one. We recently got a five star review that said repugnant, <laughs> which was the one one star review we got, <laughs> which was actually about trolley problems. I didn't see that. Uh, the, the 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 one that said it was repugnant said that, that I think that it jumped ship when we were laughing about pushing a pregnant woman off a bridge, which you must have been. We must have been talking. I don't. Right. Remember that in particular, but we must have been talking about trolley problems and trying to make it even more sort of grisly or something like that. I mean, I can only hope that that's what we're exactly. doing. 
Ghosted is pretty fucked up. <laughs> uh, right. We weren't just uh, thinking, God, I'd like to push a pregnant woman off a bridge. You know, I, this is, you know, this is an aside, a complete aside, and you'll probably edit it out. And this, this comes on the heels of the 20th anniversary of Notorious Big's song, Juicy, um, of which Grantland, yeah. of all places, I know your favorite, your hipster favorite way. website, yeah. had an article. I love a, Grantland. A to- it's the hipster side of me. Grantland had a whole article on the 20th anniversary of, of this song, Juicy. Um, now, if you listen to that original album by Notorious, the Notorious B.I.G., uh, the Ready to Die album, it is fucked up in tons of ways. I mean, it's I I think it's brilliant, but it is it is really really dark and messed up when you listen to the lyrics. So you would think that uh, the dirty version they just hold nothing back, but there is and there is a song in uh, where there is something bleeped out, and when you pay attention to what it is, it's he's talking about robbing a pregnant woman. So he says, I don't give a fuck if she's pregnant. I'll take the ring and the number one mom pendant. <laughs> and so it's like, you know, they'll like tons of N words and B words and all, you know. B- did like, you just say B, B word? Yeah. B word. <laughs> Jesus Christ. What are, what are we what are even second grade? I have a newfound sensitivity. That's all I'm saying. A newfound um, public yeah. sensitivity, maybe. <laughs> anyway, I, I look forward to hearing the edited out version of this. <laughs> well, so all this stemmed from uh, iTunes reviews. We we love those. We love emails, tweets. Uh, you can tweet us at, at peas. That's you. At Tamler. That's me. At Very Bad Wizards. That's sort of all of us. And and Matt. Uh, Matt Welsh runs that runs the Twitter feed, but we're always paying attention to it. And of course, check out Matt's awesome Tumblr page for the show. And also you can donate to us uh, on PayPal or by clicking on the Amazon link on the support page of our website. All right. Thank you again to everybody for all your support and all the different ways that you do it. So, Thought experiments. Uh, the way I thought we might organize this is the in philosophy, thought experiments are hugely important and very common, and they make careers, and they sometimes bog down entire debates. There's great things about them. There's fun things about them. And then there's times where, no, not a f- another fucking Frankfurt case paper or something. <laughs> like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. Uh, thought of just sort of separating like the different purposes of thought experiments in philosophy and then just talking about the different examples in reference to what those categories are. And the first two purposes I'm generally a huge fan of. Like, I think thought experiments are great for this kind of thing. The first one is just raising an issue or a problem, uh, just casting light on on a certain philosophical question. The ship of Theseus, great example of this. Right. The ship of the- Theseus is a ship, God, I should have this up, that every part of it has at some point been removed and then replaced replaced, um, over the course of its history as a ship. So then when you get to a certain time period, none of the same material that was on it at the beginning is on it at the end. But is it the same ship? This is a, a, a question raised by Aristotle. And that just raises interesting identity questions, right? About, you know, right. The, the physical continuity. It's 
it's clearly not physical identity that you need for something to be identical, but it's not even like physical identity of any part of, of this ship that see, if you have the intuition that that is the same ship. Um, and I love the, the variant where you take all of the parts that have been replaced and then construct another ship. Uh, oh yeah. You, you would like that. Cause it's sort of like the star Trek, uh, making a new <laughs> exactly, person, the replicator. the replicator, right? See, I don't even need I don't even need to raise the Star Trek. You have you have now crossed over where you see the the, the re- daily relevance of Star Trek. I still uh, laugh about Paul Bloom when he was on the episode talking about the Star Trek and he, he was like talking about it as if it was like a massive cover up. Like it was like the erotic <laughs> contra affair or something like that. Like just something that or or like like the Kennedy assassination <laughs> like that, that people right. for so long have gotten away with just mass genocide of like Star Trek characters. Right. Right. It's what they don't want you to know. Like they don't Star Trek writers just don't want you to know. They yeah, we were talking about um, Newcomb's paradox. Oh, this was uh, another this is... one of an example of just raising a problem that I had. Yeah, so talk about Newcomb's paradox. Yeah, yeah, Newcomb's paradox. I always find it incredibly difficult to to explain, but it's it is it is a problem in which there is a say an omniscient observer. There are two boxes in front of you. One of those boxes either contains a million dollars or nothing. And that box is opaque. That is, you have no idea whether that creature has decided to put a million dollars in there or not. You can't tell what's in the box. Um, The other box is transparent, and it contains a thousand dollars. Now, you, the creature says to you, I know what you are going to pick um, because I can see the future. Um, now, how you describe this this creature is, is relevant. Um, sometimes they're so, almost certainly correct. Right. Sometimes it's just like a really, really, really good alien scientist yeah. who knows, like 99.9%. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's just somebody who knows the future. And and the creature says, if so you can either pick both boxes, so the opaque box that either contains a million dollars or not, um, and the $1,000 box that you can see, <clears throat> Or you can only pick the opaque box. Those are your two options. Now, the critical part here is where the the creature says, if I saw that you were going to only choose the opaque box, I put a million dollars in there. Right. Um, but, but if I saw that you were going to take both boxes, box A and B, then I put nothing in there, and you're just going to get $1,000. So now the question is, um, should you take both boxes A and B, or should you take only um, box box A, the opaque box where you don't know. Now the issue is that the money is either there or it's not. The money's either there or not. Right when so, you're making so there the is choice, no, there's right. He can't switch it right before you take the box. It's either there or it's not. So as as Nozick points out um, when he describes the Newcomb's paradox, um, uh, he which. Every time I present it, I get the same problem, that everybody seems to have a clear intuition about what you ought to do. Um, so that's not – the clarity of the intuition isn't really the case. The, the problem here, the problem is that, as he says, about half of the people have it one way and the other half have it the other way. Uh, so for me, it's a very clear uh, situation where I would take both boxes because it's, it's either, either or it's, or it's not. not. That's mine right. too, yeah. Actually, I, when I raise it to classes, most people have the opposite intuition. And this has relevance to the whole Protestant thing where it's already decided whether you're going to go to hell or not. It mm. won't matter what you do. But what you do 
can be sort of an indicator of whether you're going right. to go to hell or heaven. And so right. if you really... Calvinism. Right, this is Calvinism. And so if you really think that, you know, it's already decided, and that is what a Calvinist ought to think, then it shouldn't matter, like, from your point of view, like, look, I, it's done. They can't change their mind. If, <laughs> if I, like, right. go out and I start robbing liquor stores and, you know, like... Right. Uh, right, hey. like starting a was, child pornography that. ring or, or whatever. Like, <laughs> <laughs> repugnant. <laughs> one, one star. star Kendler, one star. God damn it. We, <laughs> we need some more one star reviews just to legitimize the, <laughs> the repugnance. <laughs> but at the same time, it, I, I can feel the, the sort of from far away the pull of the other intuition, too. So I can feel the pull of both sides, what but makes, I'm on your what side. Makes what makes me mad is when people can't feel my pull. Like, this happened this last course that I taught over at Chapel Hill. Like, nobody could actually get why I was... Well, I mean, it's, I it's there in the box. It's either there, like, the money is there or it's not. <laughs> I know. That's what I was... Like, did you smack them? I was like, like, did you, like, shake it was them? So, it was so frustrating, you know? And that would have really pissed me yeah. off. But, you know, but here's, so here's a case in which a thought experiment doesn't seem to be sort of pulling, you know, what it's, what it's intended to do. What is it intended is, to do? Is it intended to I raise a, a pistemological problem, right? Like, I mean, it's a, it's a rational. I, Newcomb was a mathematician, I, I guess. Yeah. Right? I don't know that there was a point to the paradox other than to show that it was paradox. But what's the paradox? Right. Uh, the paradox is that maybe you can feel both how both answers are justified. So then it's a par if it's a paradox, it's a paradox about epistemology that there are two just or, or like of practical reason. There are two justified courses of action yeah. that are that conflict with each other. Right. Right. Now I don't know whether Newcomb did that you know Newcomb, I, I don't think was an epistemologist, but but yeah, I, I take it that that, that is the problem. and and and, um, and paradoxes are one kind of thought experiment, I think. Yeah, right? because if you can show that something is truly paradoxical, it's almost like uh, you know it's almost like a reductio you're saying like you know this is sort of absurd. If if your theory leads to paradox, then that is a um, a problem with your theory. Well, it's interesting because sometimes it's used as like evidence for skepticism about something like Zeno right. and his thought experiments about, you know, t the tortoise and Achilles. If the turtle gets a head start, Achilles can never catch the turtle because um, the turtle will all as soon as the Achilles gets to the point where the turtle was, the turtle will always move just a tiny bit and right. and that right. will go on to infinity so achilles can never pass him right and and this was something about sort of motion right most real yeah. motion is the way the way we understand it is impossible yeah. something like that yeah so uh, so sometimes that that's what it's used to sometimes it's used as a just a counter example to a general principle and this is the second way i think thought experiments can be very valuable and we ask listeners on our facebook page which is another way you can contribute to the show and actually one that people use a lot i think because right. we have a lot of likes on there people seem to interact with the site and i hope that continues because i really like that and both of us are on it a lot both posting usually as very bad wizards. Anyway, we asked people what what their favorite thought experiments were, and one person said Galileo's balls, which I, I didn't like. I, I'd never heard of, and I thought like, is he joking or whatever? And I googled uh, Galileo's balls, and 
<laughs> I, I didn't Google image it. I just. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we little kids. It, we, uh, yeah, that's that's the B word to which I was referring. The, right. the balls, yeah, the ball. Galileo's balls, uh, Galileo's hairy balls. <laughs> sweaty. Do you think sweaty. he he like trimmed? <laughs> I don't think that I don't think we had trim technology back then. I, I, I and people would just wouldn't put their sword that close to their uh, <laughs> to their. Junk. Plus, he was Italian, and yeah, they, uh, they don't trim <laughs> shit. <laughs> nice. Uh, anyway, Galileo's balls. It's not the famous thing that you read about in school, where he took like an orange and a bowling ball—not a bowling ball, but a boulder right, or something like—and dropped them and showed that they landed at the same time. Aristotle right. had a theory that heavier things fall faster than lighter things. So Galileo's balls is not just going to the top of the Leaning Tower of Pisa and dropping, because this probably never happened, and then dropping two things and seeing that they landed at the same time. It's a—it's a paradox. It's. If you attach a heavier object to a lighter object and you drop them, there are two Mm. contradictory things that should happen. On the one hand, the, the heavier ball should be falling faster, and the lighter ball, because it's falling slower, should act as sort of like a parachute and slow the heavier ball down. And so the heavier ball should drop slower than it than it would if it was just not attached to that lighter ball. But on the other hand, the heavier and the lighter ball are together heavier than just the heavy ball. If you put them on a scale, they would be heavier. And so it should fall faster than the heavier ball would on its own. And so those two things are inconsistent. And so without doing any scientific experiments, just this thought experiment shows, or at least it's intended to show, that there's something fucked up about Aristotle's About your view. theory. Exactly. Yeah, about the theory. Yeah. It's a par- it's, or at least it shows that it can at lead... Least it's a reductio ad, ex- ad absurdum, maybe, of, Ar- of Aristotle's theory. Maybe this is a, a good time to point out that so uh, there are a lot of exper- thought experiments in science that sort of our our attempts like this to arrive at at some conclusion about the external world um by doing without ever collecting any empirical data and i think they they're very valuable to science and they are deep tradition science you know i, I immediately thought of like einstein as a child running alongside this you know a light beam seeing what it would be like what what could we you know what would that look like you know and this was prior to collecting any empirical data or even any mathematical data um he could he could ponder this and this would lead to fruitful scientific investigation um in philosophy well in psychology and maybe in philosophy it's a little different in that it's in psychology at least these thought experiments are used to probe to probe the mind the responses themselves are the data how they people are. respond is the data, yeah. Yeah. I, not with Einstein, right? No, that's what I'm saying, that, yeah. that in science, there's usually some attempt at gaining information about the external world, and and sort of, it's taken for granted that, for instance, it's obvious that, that Zeno's examples lead to paradox, or that Galileo's lead to par- you know, leads to paradox in Aristotle's view, or... They're trying to show that there's something fucked up about the theory, right? Exactly. So it's usually used as a negative thing. I mean, in Einstein's case, right, it was uh, a negative critique of what theory? I actually don't know. I think that in Einstein's case, it was just, but maybe it was trying to show is, is 
simply that current theories didn't have a good answer for what it would look like if you were traveling at the speed of light alongside. Okay, I actually talk about this in my paper, though I don't remember it at all. It was uh, Maxwell's equations. If his theory were correct, like his equations about light waves, then it w- he would be observing a spatially oscillatory electromagnetic field at rest. However, there seems to be no such thing, whether on the basis of experience or according to Maxwell's equations. This is a, that was a quote from Einstein. So that it showed that there were serious internal problems with Maxwell's theory. Right. Um, so just the conceivability, even though obviously nobody can run at the, the speed of light, just the conceivability just showed that there was some sort of glitch in right. the in in the theory, and that's what a lot of times these and same with the Galileo's balls, right? Right. That, Your theory implies something that, on either common sense or generally accepted, you know, view of the world, is just impossible, right? If we take your theory to the to its logical conclusion, yeah, right. There, there's something about Galileo's balls, though, that just seems like it shouldn't get to show what it shows you know like there's something what if aristotle were right that would still be a paradox you know, what if the world just did work that way you know like it seems like right. the world could work that way where heavier things fall faster and well no i mean but the but the point is that it didn't it didn't quite it predicted both opposite things right but the fact that it predicted both opposite things it's funny that that would have the effect of just, you know. Well, it hinges, it hinges on the assumption that when you drop something, two opposite things can't happen, right? Well, right, but that's an assumption that works. And right? that I mean, is I, actually that's plausible. That's plausible, and this is what the power of Schrodinger's cat, <laughs> right? Schrodinger's cat is is also showing exactly sort of that thing that um, that there is indeterminacy in what the theory predicts whether the cat will be alive or dead, um, but that's embraced. That's embraced, that's embraced by, by quantum theory. mechanics. Yeah. yeah. So so Schrodinger's cat, it's not clear that that's being used to show that that's a problem, rather than just sort of elucidating it's, it's the theory. Show how how crazy the theory is. Um, yeah. Let me talk about some examples in ethics about when thought experiments are used as a counterexample to a general principle. Couple famous ones: um, the violinist. We've talked. A, I think we've talked about Judith Jarvis Thompson's violinist, who's attached to. Right. You, you just wake but up. I guess you wake up and you find that you're you're attached to a person. To violinist to a, doesn't matter. I yeah. guess, but. The Society of Music has wanted to save because they're suffering from kidney damage. You have to stay attached to them for nine months um, by this bedside table. And the doctor says, look, I don't condone what they did attaching you to this guy. But now if I disconnect you, the guy will die. So this violinist will die. So you have to stay connected to the violinist. Often this thought experiment is, is viewed as an analogy to abortion, which I think it also can be. Right. But if you go back and look at the paper, what it is, is a counterexample to the principle, to a general moral principle that every person has the right to life. So the way her argument works is she concedes that the fetus is a person for the sake of argument. 
but challenges the general principle that every person has a right to life. And she says, here's an example where that violinist doesn't have a right to you staying attached to them for nine months, even though you disconnecting them will kill them, will make them die. They don't have a right for you not to do that. They have no right. And so she concludes that the right to life has to be interpreted differently. It has to be a right not to be killed unjustly, but it, it's, it shouldn't be viewed as a just right not to be killed. There's a distinction between the right sort of to provide continual support. Yeah, or the right just not to be killed, period, versus the right not to be killed unjustly. And so the argument, any argument that depends on the, the, the premise, a person has a sort of an unconditional right to life. Or, you know, even with certain conditions, like they're not threatening another person's life. So in that sense, it's an effective way of providing a counterexample to it. Uh, a clearly overbroad principle, a principle that can't, that needs to be refined. Right. And this is actually what it's doing is nicely is, is sort of conceptual analysis, but it's doing it in a way that's very easily understandable. It's saying there was a distinction. There is a distinction to be made here. And now let me give you a compelling example of why this distinction matters for this argument. And it's compelling also because it does generally generate the intuition that you wouldn't be doing something wrong if you disconnected from the violinist that it would be very it might be extremely nice of you to stay connected to the violinist but it's not something that you're obligated to do it should be it should be your choice now whether this serves as an effective analogy for abortion is a separate question and a much more problematic issue but as a counterexample to that general principle i think it works really well uh experience machine we should talk about because uh, yeah. this was one that came up a lot on the on the website, and I, I see it in one sense as a counterexample to the hedonistic principle of utilitarianism that the only thing we value is pleasurable experiences. This is something that I think. Mill is committed to that the thing that matters is that we experience the most happiness. Now, this can be higher forms of happiness, higher value, you know. Go ahead. The experience, I was going to say the experience machine is, is a valuable example because it, it even shows that when you include these higher forms of happiness, right, like sort of, sort of like achieving your goals and higher life, pleasures, like, yeah, right, these higher pleasures, that it still seems as if something's wrong. Like even when you, even when you grant these higher pleasures. Exactly. So the, the experience machine, you can program into it that you'll write an opera that you'll uh, write a great novel, that you'll be reading all the great works of Tolstoy. So you don't have to just be like doing ecstasy your whole life, right? Right. Uh, which right. was you sort could, of mills. You know, you'll do a you'll do a mediocre podcast with a, <laughs> a limited set of listeners <laughs> and talk about ball, hairy balls, galleys, hairy balls. Exactly. but <laughs> you, we know we're not in the experience because <laughs> we, we, we would we, never we, have we, programmed we, this. We, we would have been those partially examined life guys. And you, <laughs> and you, right. you know who, who definitely knows they're not in the experience machine is listeners of this podcast. <laughs> 
They're 100% certain. <laughs> just them listening to this podcast just is conclusive, decisive evidence that they're not in it. Yeah, so it's a counterexample. Again, depending on the intuition that you wouldn't plug into the experience machine because if you wouldn't plug in, then you're denying yourself the best possible sort of pleasurable life in terms of just your subjective experiences obviously it wouldn't be really happening you'd be like a uh floating in a whatever i don't know some sort of what are you floating in i don't know you're floating in something. <laughs> i'm sure there's a star trek episode these, these kinds of these kinds of examples are really powerful rhetorically and i love them because um what they're saying is uh you think you believe something Right, you have this claim. You swear yeah. up and down that you believe that pleasurable experiences are the only thing that are that's valuable, um, and then you come up with these examples and you say, "Ah, see, you you now have an intuition that is in direct conflict with what you said you believed." And this is this is to me what I what I loved about you know taking philosophy classes the first yeah. the first time I ever did, which is like you swear that you believe that oh it's that life is sacred, but let me give you this example. Right. Or you swear that the distinction that you, that is relevant is killing versus letting die. But let me give you this example, and then you realize the power of the example is ah, or I you know I don't really believe that. I believe something a little bit more sophisticated, or not. Yeah, right. And it can even like people. You, re- I, I also love teaching these because people resist at first. And like, so they'll resist to the experience machine by saying part of what's enjoyable about life is the struggle, you know, that you fail at first and then you succeed and that makes it all worth it. And, you know, the obvious answer to that is, well, if you know that, just program that into the experience machine. Yeah, you you struggle with this opera that you've been writing and nobody, you just plug that in and then all of a sudden, like, it, 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 it's a little hit at this off-off Broadway production, and then <laughs> some critic sees it, and then all of it, you know, like you can do whatever the fuck you want, right, uh, exactly. and, and it it just works. It, it works beautifully for that. Um, he also wanted to sh- what what he really wanted to show, which I think it also does fairly effectively, is that there are other things that matter to us. There are other things that we value besides pleasurable experiences, including authenticity, something being real, actually, you know, actually doing the things that we're doing rather than just thinking that we're doing the things that we're doing. Like that, these things matter over and above just. Uh, the pleasurable experiences of it. Right. There are other things that he thinks that shows related to free will and stuff like that that I'm, I'm more dubious of, but it's great. The last counterexample case that I'll just mention but not talk about because it's been talked about to death are Frankfurt cases. But it is a effective counterexample of the principle of alternate possibilities. Right, right. Here, really, the assumption is that sort of on the face of it, it will be obvious that these are counterexamples. Right, that these are the power comes in, you know, the fact that you realize when you're given this example that ah, this is pointing out something that is right. Um, it, they would fail if if they were very weak demonstrations, right? Yeah. So, for instance, like the the Peter Singer 
are you know when when he presents when he has people walk through the you know would you ruin your suit in order to save a drowning kid but that's so fact, this, this is is this in a different category this then? is in this a is, different this, category right, this is a building this, this is, is building a building for evidence for a principal category yeah well yeah. then let's let's move on then to that because okay yeah. yeah so let's talk about that and you can say what you're going to say about the drowning pond case because mm-hmm. sometimes now that they're they're used not providing a counterexample to a principle or a paradox for some theory, like a reductio ad absurdum of a theory, but actually providing positive support for a principle. And the drowning pond case is a, is a great example in ethic. And the principle that he's trying to provide support for is the, the, like a, the crucial normative principle of his argument that if there is something bad if you can prevent something bad from happening without sacrificing something of comparable moral importance, then you ought to do it. And this is a clear case where the, the you, ruining your suit is not of comparable moral importance to the, or even of any moral s- significance at all compared to the bad thing that's going to happen. And so that you should obviously do it. Right. And, and uh, so I guess that these are more problematic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so and and they're more problematic because it is always the case that providing positive evidence is is never quite complete in the way that providing a counterexample is to a theory right so so you always have the problem that that pulling an intuition in say the 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 singer pond case can't possibly be a complete set of evidence in favor of his ethical claim, of his more broad ethical claim. Right. Okay, I'm looking at my dog, Charlie. I can't draw from that that all dogs are fat, dwarfish, uh, (laughs) hound mutts, right? Just because I'm looking at this one case of a fat, dwarfish, hound mutt. The, right. that doesn't that doesn't establish that the, all dogs are like that. So there's just a there's just a problem right. with that just at the outset, like an obvious one, right? Yeah, and you know, I, this is forgive us for delving into the obvious. Like I, <laughs> I take it that this is an, an obvious point about confirmation versus falsification or disconfirmation. Right. Um, but it is, I think, not not talked about that often in this particular. You know, lumping thought experiments together. Um, masks the fact that that clearly the disconfirmation ones or the you know demonstrating paradox and therefore discom- disconfirming or or demonstrating something that's clearly impossible on all other theories uh, those those really do play a different role than building than building a theory and so and, the burden is and maybe we'll toss in the veil of ignorance to this um, yeah I mean that's like I, I I have that in the category of just establishing a broad position uh, mm-hmm. which I think is less is even more ambitious than this category which is just providing evidence general, for us yeah. for a single general principle but right. yeah we could talk about that um, the ring of Gyges is an interesting one tell me so, remind me what that is so the ring of Gyges is Plato from the Republic is what's his what's his face now see now I've had a couple of drinks the interlocutor in the Republic one of them um <sighs> It's like his brother. It's Plato bro- Plato's brother. Wait. Glaucon. <laughs> God damn it, motherfucker. Glaucon. Glaucon. All right. So Glaucon. <laughs> so Glaucon wants to show that people are only just or good because they think it's going to be to their advantage. Like they're afraid of being punished. 
and they want a good reputation. Um, but that the ideal kind of life would be to be unjust and be able to get away with it. Um, right. And he gives two thought experiments, and the more famous one is the Ring of Gyges example, where he says, look, take a just man and an unjust man and give them this ring that will make them be invisible. Oh, yeah. And and then just watch how they behave and his point and what he what he says is it's and, and you have to share this intuition that both the unjust man and the just man would act exactly the same way they'd start stealing stuff from markets they would start uh using it to gain wealth and power and he even says to go sleep with anyone you want although i don't know how invisibility <laughs> helps with that like i've never understood that like he always he just says now you can have any woman that you want if you this is, now that you're invisible like i would actually think that would make it harder maybe yeah. because like because of the confidence that you have now gained with your invisibility ring makes you just game more like more effectively yeah. like, <laughs> oh i see a... right <laughs> what, you just walk into a bar now and you just you feel like you're the shit right <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, it reminds me of uh, of a joke about the Invisible Man and Wonder Woman and Superman. Have you ever yeah, seen the me. movie Amazon Women on the Moon? No, There's sounds a, hot. It, no, well, I don't. I just remember the first scene, which is called "Son of the." It's like a skit movie, and the first scene is called "Son of the Invisible Man," and it's just about this guy that he 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 thinks he's invisible, and he's dressed like the Invisible Man, all in bandages, and then he starts. We gotta put this on the site, removing the bandages, and you just it's just a guy. You just see him, but he's convinced that he's invisible, and so he goes around the town naked because he doesn't want like people. And he goes into the pub and like goes and grabs people's darts. It's it's just very funny. Like uh, <laughs> the concept of it is really funny in the way they do it. Oh, we put a YouTube link to that. All right, uh, but so what this is supposed to show is that people, you know, it's supposed to be ultimately support for psychological egoism. If you have the intuition that everybody would act this way, then you have the intuition that psychological egoism is true to some extent, right? Yeah. Well, I always took it as defeating, as just defeating psychological egoism, plain and simple. Because, but, but I, because people don't have the intuition that. I mean, that's certainly not how he, that, that's not how Glaucon intends it. He intends it for the exact opposite, support for a psychological ego. Right, right. The intuition that the just man wouldn't start acting all fucked up when he had the ring is, yeah. That would be, that would be, well, that wouldn't be, and, and here's the problem, though. That would not be evidence against psychological egoism. It would be evidence that you are not a psychological egoist, that you don't endorse psychological egoism, or you do endorse psychological egoism, right? I mean, that's the problem with these thought experiments when they're being used in this manner. It is the problem. It it is, yeah. And, and, uh, but, but this is the way in which psychologists seem to be using them, right? As litmus tests for what, in fact, lay beliefs are. And that the fact that you could get, say, um, you could ask people about this this ring and get a, a a good divergence, you know, or concordance, whatever, would show that this in fact is what people believe. 
Um, but but the, the substantive claim that he wants to make is not that people believe that psychological egoism is true. It's that psychological egoism is true, that people really are uh, deep down selfish and they're only acting for their own advantage. I don't know how much evidence for that claim like what how much evidence for that substantive view is the fact that people believe that 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 we are psychological egoists you see what i'm saying right yeah yeah and this is one critique of the way these thought experiments are used is that the thought experiments themselves are just theory laden that they're they are they're not the right the fact that it's just assuming that everybody has this intuition no, but that's this not the just, problem. The problem is that even if everybody does have that intuition, that wouldn't show that people are psychological egoists. It could be that people just have the wrong intuition about how human nature works. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, would it defeat that problem if you said, like, what would you do if you had this ring? No, because, right? I mean, it would it would make it better, but... Right. Your predictor of what you would do might be very – in fact, I think this is obviously true in the case of the Ring of Gyges. What I predict I would do if I had the Ring of Gyges is probably very different from what I would do. What you would actually do. Yeah. 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 And, yeah, no, it is problematic. It's there's – too, there's too much in there. There's just – there's your view of what other people would do. There's a view of what you would do and the, what you would actually do, and it's unclear – what's doing the work here all right let's go on to the more of the really problematic ones um and i would put in this category zombies marry the color scientist the original position um these are these are thought experiments that are and part of the problematic nature of them is their ambition is they're trying to not just provide evidence for a principle they're trying to establish like a metaphysical position like dualism or view of justice about what the just just form of distribution should be throughout a society and because of that ambition you know they're 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 more they're more likely to to be unsuccessful i guess but i do think they're all in their own way is unsuccessful yeah but but i think they're unsuccessful for different reasons so let's actually talk about the zombie the zombie uh case because this is you know, huge, right? It's it's a huge. If if that argument is right, the conceivability arguments that um, uh, then, let's talk about what it is. Yeah, let's talk about it. So, so you it's trying to it establish dualism, right? I swear to God, I never quite could get this. Like, okay, I, so it, yeah. it, it's it's it's. Let me do my best and right. and see if you can uh, if you can get this because I struggle to think that. Like I saw in the paper that – so here's the argument uh, that I give in the paper. I, the first premise – this is how I present Chalmers' argument. In our world, there are conscious experiences. There is a logically possible world physically identical to ours in which the positive facts about consciousness do not hold. There's a logically possible world, and this is a, uh, this world where there are zombies. Now what zombies are are exact le- replicas of us. In every physical way, they do the same things, they have the same exact physiology, 
but they have no conscious experiences. They have no qualia. That's just right. the philosophical term for subjective experiences. So, like, if I see the color red, that's qualia. If I uh, if I see, you know, like, if I feel pain, that's qualia, right? Just the things that we feel and the things that we experience subjectively. Uh, right. So these zombies just don't experience any of that. They But they do all this same things they react in all the same ways the idea is that we can conceive of that world so it's a logically and and if it, we can conceive of it then it's logically possible this is and here's this the step that i think that you're struggling with right Therefore, i'm struggling with that step actually the one that you just gave but but oh, yeah. well that's well, the right i mean so but so 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 here's the step that i think you might initially struggle with which is therefore Facts about consciousness are further facts about our world over and above the physical facts. And so, and then the final step, so materialism is false. Because materialism states, that materialism as a metaphysical view states that all the physical facts about the world are all there is. Like they fix the facts right. about the world. And the fact that there could be facts over and above the physical facts shows that materialism is is false yeah so yeah what part of that are you struggling with the conceivability part so the the conceivability arguments is always what got me because uh, and you talk about this in your paper which actually helped me understand it a bit so conceivability is something that really means uh, a lot It, it it has a meaning that is is at least a, a lot more specific than lay terms of conceivability. So, so yeah. it's what it what it means to imagine that something is possible. I always struggled with the leap from the ability to to conceive of something as sort of that something wasn't inconsistent, right? It was logically possible. Um, what the fuck that had anything to do with whether or not it actually exists. Well, no, but it's not supposed to say that it actually exists. It's supposed to say that it's logically possible. Right, but there is a... Even if something is logically possible, what possible implications does that have for... well, that's what, so you are struggling not with the con, the move from conceivability to logical possibility. You're you're struggling with the move from logical possibility to actuality, like that that actually exists. Yes, yes, yeah, right. And I think the idea is, and I actually think the Mary the color scientist might make this even more clear. But the idea is that. What materialism is committed to is a necessary connection between the physical facts about the world and the conscious and the facts about consciousness. That those two things, that there's a necessary connection, that facts about the material world, physical facts, can, uh, are necessarily connected to conscious to, to facts about our conscious experiences, even if we don't know what they are, that there is some uh, underlying necessary connection. And so it's like, a, it's, it's, I think it's like Galileo's balls, uh, just the logical possibility of the physical facts not fixing um, the, the mental facts makes it so that, that there so is it's, no it's such necessity. It's meant, so to, it's defeat meant to defeat material- materialism, and then, therefore, because the only other option is some form of dualism that, that it supports then. 
But I, I you know, it's funny because I'm explaining it like that as if like I know what I'm talking about, or maybe it doesn't <laughs> sound like that. But then I'm like, I, wait, what? What <laughs> materialism is committed to this necessary connection between like I I think we we need to get like like I don't know the philosopher of mind like my colleague like John Weisberg or Pete Mandic. Uh, yeah. I'm sure he's probably already talked about this on his podcast, uh, Space Time Mind. Uh, but like, we need to get someone to like, because I, I say those words because I see that I wrote them once, but I don't. <laughs> but I don't totally get it myself. Uh, <laughs> too much. So, uh, uh, but, alcohol is uh, a hell of a the, drug. The, 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 the paper that my paper challenges the part of the argument that I don't think we can like conceive of these things. Like he says, we can conceive of them but i don't think we actually can so like floating iron bars is my example of that where it's not my example it's an example that i found in some old 70s paper where somebody says look you can in one sense you can conceive of a floating iron bar it's like an iron bar that's just floating on water i can think of that but on the other hand like part of the essential features of an iron bar is that it has a that it it can't float is that it can't float it has a some sort of what it, what, I don't remember anything that I said, but some sort of like... It is. The very composition of iron is such that it is heavier than water. It's so, heavier than water, right? Yeah. Specific value or some, some, something yeah, like that. Right. And that is intrinsic to what it means to be iron. Right. And so that is a property of iron that... Right. And so you so, distinguish in the paper the, the, those properties, those I think you call them the primary intention, um, that, that are so critical to the definition of what iron is. And then there's things like, you know, looking metallic and... And being, you know, having right. a certain noise when knocked, um, that that are secondary intentions, and it's though we can conceive of those, we can conceive of a metally thing, of an irony thing that doesn't that can float in air, but we're not. But that doesn't mean that you can conceive of iron floating. Does the Mary one get it, it better? So the Mary one is that this Mary has 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 learned everything there is to know about color. From a physical, like from a naturalistic standpoint, she's studied everything about how the brain processes color, and but she's been kept in this black and white room her whole life. Is that and intended to be? Is that also intended to be thing. a defense of dualism? Yeah, it's because she then she gets out, she sees the world, and she learns something new. She she sees like a tree. And sees that it's green, and she learns something new, even though she knew all the physical facts about what it was for people to see green. But she actually learned a new thing, and that's see that seems like I don't think it works because I don't think we can conceive of somebody that's uh, that knows all the physical facts about color processing. But these, uh, uh, but I feel I, like but, I, but, a, but, I, but if we could, that that does seem like it it might. I don't know that I feel like it turns so much on what it means to know all of the physical facts. And, and here's where I'm hopelessly always with these examples. I'm, I'm, I'm hopelessly reminded that I, that I must be a scientist at heart because these, these have no pull over me. I mean, this is like, is it's, it's so obvious to me that, that, Oh, well, if you mean, if by knowing all of the facts about color, you mean sort of like what, what I knew about sex before I ever had sex. Like, I read so much. I read so much about what it was and how one had it. Um, but I was a virgin for so long. It's so obvious to me that well, if by if by what you mean by knowing all of the things uh, includes the experience, then 
no. <laughs> right? Like, but sh- but she's not just looking at like scrambled versions of Playboy. <laughs> 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 she's. She's actually like <laughs> the first time I ever had sex. I had it in all this like scrambly way. <laughs> I thought that's how it had to be done. Uh, I was like, wait. <laughs> I, I I see. I I mean, I feel like, like kind of the same way. Even though you know, I think the pull of these things is your your desire to argue against them. You know, like everyone's like, this is going to be the paper that finally puts zombies or Mary to rest. You know, like <laughs> now nobody's going to talk about them after this. Like people think that. And of course, at best, it inspires some new variation of zombies right. or some new distinction type <laughs> L materialism or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Uh, oh. I think we're running out of steam, but I think we, we are. We haven't Maybe. talked about the original position and stuff. Uh, we, have, we haven't even talked about the, psych- the psychological use. And we of haven't the, talked. Like, should we do a part two? Let's do a part two. Yeah, yeah. We'll do a part two of thought experiments uh, for our next episode, and we got to get Josh Green on. Maybe Sam Harris. He's got a new book coming out. He did sort of suggest to you, right, that he might want to come on. Yes, yes. He he's been willing to do it for a while. We just yeah. got to work it out. Um, so, so yeah. But we definitely have to keep talking about this because we did. You got to um, do a part two. We have a lot more to talk about. Yeah, like you said, for the, like the whole way that they're used in psychology. I kind of dom- I feel like I talked too much in this second half. Well, you know, you were you were reminiscing about your days as an analytic philosopher, <laughs> as a philosopher. Seriously, period. people have got to. We'll post that your paper because these are like the most untamler like sentences <laughs> I've ever ever read in my life. I, I was actually going to pull out some some choice quotes, but now I closed the uh, the paper. But <laughs> I was like, this is not you. This is like who did you who did you steal this from, <laughs> or who inhabited my body? Uh, exactly. Did, did, did it's conceivable? It's conceivable to me that somebody inhabited your body. Did, so somebody did. So therefore, somebody did. Uh, <laughs> that's not to be fair to Trump. That's I know. I know. I know. I'm not that dumb. I get it. I mean, I get it. It's just I, I don't. Maybe you do. I don't totally. Still, uh, I literally say in this paper like that. Uh, so I say, once you get that conclusion that zombies are conceivable, the rest of the argument follows really easily. <laughs> and what I'm missing is how, like, how it follows really easily. <laughs> it's the ultimate hand waving, but which was fine in this context because everybody assumes because everybody like, agrees that everyone agrees with that, right? It's like some sort of mass hysteria. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, it's like Chalmers said it. So, like, obviously. I, I do think, like, that's the case with the knowledge argument. Like, the debate about <laughs> is something really not knowledge? It's just like, well, Plato and Descartes were worried about this, so it's got to be a real problem. And right. maybe that's what this is. But I think there is more to this than, uh, no, I, than I certainly we're, we're giving. The philosophers of mind who are listening to this are just, like, cringing. They're, like, throwing up by now. Well, but the ones that I know are very frustrated by zombies and that whole thing. <laughs> so, you know, like, and they sort of agree with the spirit of this doesn't establish what it's supposed to establish. But, uh, yeah, whatever. Yeah. All right. right. Uh, fuck them. <laughs> fuck them. <laughs> no, they're all good people. Um, all right. Well, thank you. We'll do a part two of this um, next time where we'll talk about like the big stuff.
Agreed.